On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to, said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for life and breath and the people around us. Help us to reflect on this scripture and what it means. And blessed are those who believe. And later today and this week, let us go out and be that through our behavior, through our eyes, through our actions, and through our love. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thanks, David. I really like seeing people, yeah, you can be seated, come up and they realize, oh gosh, they really are going to make me go up on the pulpit thing. So Todd joke, we need to have some like ascendancy music. I'm thinking like the theme from Top Gun, like down, now, now, now. Okay. Work on that. Note that for next week, please. Um, so <laughs> that was a really dumb joke. Okay. Uh, when I was little in my parents' game room, we had the TV in the corner, and then behind it in this cabinet, we had like the kid TV, which was for the regular Nintendo. In a very random memory, it was one of those, you know, square CRT TVs like we had in the late 80s, early 90s, and it was the kind that produced static electricity. Do you remember when TVs produced static electricity and you could almost like wipe it off like, like dust or something? But uh, I loved playing regular Nintendo. We played Contra. That was one of my favorite games. Anyone else play Contra? Just me? Okay, a couple of people, so you know the Konami code to be invincible. Up, down, up, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, select, start, and then you're, inv you're invincible. So if you have your regular Nintendo and you want to go play this afternoon, then you can beat all the bosses. Um, I loved playing that. I loved playing um, Super Mario Brothers 3 because we had the Game Genie, which was great. The Game Genie was stuck in our Nintendo, so we just almost always played with it. Um, and you could put in all these codes, and that was really fun. I loved Super Tech Mobile, not Tecmo, Super Tech Mobile, because you could be either Bo Jackson, who was just unbelievable. You could, like, run all the way to the back, like, in the backfield, and then run your touch. Like, you could run for, like, 30 minutes the entire game, Bo Jackson. He's never going to get tackled. Or you could be QB Eagles. Uh, they couldn't get the rights to whoever the quarterback was at the time, and he was just so fast. So you could play as QB Eagles. 
which was really fun. But the worst thing is you'd be in the middle of a game, things would be going great, and all of a sudden the Nintendo freezes, and it goes to pink screen, or your guy is like in perpetual motion, and it's never going to get unstuck. And so pretty primitive technology. You couldn't like save where you were. You got to press the reset button. And sometimes the reset button didn't work, so you'd have to actually take out the cartridge. What would you do? <laughs> and sometimes that didn't do the trick, so you had to take it and you had to like beat it against your hand. And if you got like just the right angle on like the, like the, the ball part of your palm, then maybe the Nintendo would work. And you could start it over. You'd press reset. And you'd the whole thing, reset the whole process, and that stunk. You couldn't save where you are. This week it happened that Emily and I were uh, at the kitchen sink. The days are long in these little kid years, which I feel like I lament every time I preach. That's where we are right now in life. Uh, literally this morning from 1.30 to 2.30, my son was crying. And I, was, I know I was saying out loud, Jesus, please make him stop crying. Um, but, like, we get into this rhythm where, like, we get the kids to bed, we bathe them, we feed them, the house is a disaster, we clean the house, I'm at the kitchen sink, and I just want to zone out. And that's the time where we have to talk. And so Emily is bringing topics to me, and I get into the habit sometimes of making a mockery of anything that she's saying. And, <laughs> and, honestly, and I, I don't mean to be mean, it's just like I'm on autopilot, and if our, presence, if our kids are in the room, sometimes she will call me something or spell it. And if they're not in the room, sometimes I'll get called something a little more colorful because I, des I deserve it. Uh, but I'll realize, oh, gosh, okay, I'm sorry. I've been an autopilot. Let's start over. We need to have a kind of conversational, relational reset that happens from time to time. But you get stuck. You need to start over. And we're 12 weeks in to our official launch as a church, and we've been saying that, man, many of us need to reset. What on earth are we doing in this whole church thing? Sometimes I go to church conferences and I feel like I'm going as an individual and I'll run into other people who are dressed exactly like me and are reading all the exact same books as me and, I, and I'm worn out by the utter sameness. <laughs> of just Sometimes you get into the rhythm of doing church and it's so predictable and you think, what on earth are we even doing here? Maybe you feel like you're in a stale spot in your life with God. Um, maybe you've been hurt by the church and you've come reluctantly, uh, but you've come, it's kind of like a Hail Mary. It's like, God, if you got anything, give me a shot. Give me, a, give me something today. And we've said as a, as a church, we want to take a hard reset on our spiritual operating system. And we're doing that by taking a hard look at the person of Jesus. Jesus is the one that started this whole thing. The author of Hebrews describes him as the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one that's writing the story. And so we've gone back to look at the person of Jesus. And for 12 weeks, we've just told Jesus stories. I really don't want to stop. Last week, we told the story of stories, the story of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And that's like, if that story didn't happen, none of us would know his name. If that hadn't happened in human history, he would have been one more person, one more failed Messiah that would have been gone down in the annals of history. If it were not for the resurrection of Jesus, it would have been the end of the road for him and for his disciples, and it would have been meaningless. None of us would have been here. There'd be no Christian church. Uh, last week was the uh, NCAA tournament wrapped up on Monday, and you'll learn in time that this, like, nice guy thing is just a front, that on the inside, I'm actually kind of a horrible human being and a jerk, evidenced by what I'm about to tell you. One of my favorite things about the NCAA tournament 
is something that happens after the games. So like even if you're a 16 seed or a one seed, all of your fans are so invested and excited about what's about to happen and then you lose. And then it's my favorite part of the tournament, which is sad fans. So <laughs> it's like that kid's crying out to God, why? Uh, here's another one. Not all of these are from the tournament. This, this is, I Googled sad fans this week. Some sad Kansas fans here. The next, the next two are really good. That, <laughs> that poor kid is heartbroken. At the first service, there was someone wearing an OU shirt. And they were like giving me a hard time in the middle of the service. That poor kid is heartbroken. And then because I wanted to like keep it even, uh, this is my favorite. There's, the picture is slightly cut off. Here's what I love about this scene. This dude took off his shirt while he was tailgating, and someone painted the orange, and then the goat pokes on them. And then some brilliant person in college had the idea. They said, hey, I've got a pumpkin in the back of my truck. Want to cut it up and put it on as a helmet? And he's got a pumpkin on his head, and he's grieving. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, Jeff, I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you. Okay. I love, I love sad fans. It's so funny when you're not emotionally involved because, like you can see, these poor folks cared so much. They were so invested. And now he's walking to the car shirtless with a pumpkin on his head. <laughs> it's just hilarious. Now, here's, what's, here's what relates. Here's why I told the story. This is exactly what's going on with the disciples in the text that we just read. They're upstairs behind a locked door and, and they're, they're sad fans. They had walked with Jesus for three years. They'd seen him do some bonkers stuff like we've been talking about in the last 12 weeks. Lazarus, you know, he saw him raise the dead. You know, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead for crying out loud. And then they'd see him have this huge public failure, apparently, where he was arrested by the Romans. He was tried for sedition at the encouragement of the Jewish leaders, and he was publicly humiliated and executed. And the disciples who saw this happen know they're next. And so they're in their upper room and they're hiding because they know they're on someone's watch list and they're going to be, they're going to go out like he did. And so they're hiding and they're freaking out and they're scared and they're starting to fill out job applications. A couple days go by and they're like, well, uh, what are we going to do now? Peter and John are about to call their dad and say, can we come back to the fishing boat? And suddenly Mary bursts into the room, Mary Magdalene. He says, the tomb's empty. Peter and John are like, no, no. And so they go. They go. They see the tomb's empty. They run back and tell the other disciples. Mary sticks around. This is what we read last week. And Jesus appears to her. She thinks he's the gardener. Jesus appears to her and says, Mary. And she knows that voice, and it broke her heart. It's him. He's alive. And what, went, what, what happened was what you call a mutation, where you had this large group of people who were in mourning, who because of some of the appearances of the resurrected Jesus transition to having the opposite response. Whenever you see a group of people do something like that, that kind of major shift, it's called a mutation, and mutations always require explanations. So let me give you an example. On Monday, Villanova uh, played Michigan in the national championship on Monday night, and everybody who watched the game, many millions of people, saw that Villanova pretty well spanked Michigan. Uh, every, everyone saw when the game was over, the confetti comes down, the coach and the players get the trophy, Villanova walks off, they're crying, all of their moms are crying in the, in the bleachers, and everyone saw it happen. 
Now imagine, imagine that on, that was on Monday. Imagine that on Tuesday and Wednesday, the Michigan fans all over the country are licking their wounds and they're grieving and they're taking sick days because they just can't bear the fact that their team lost. They're having to wash their hair after having the pumpkin helmets on. And, um, and, and then on Thursday, all of a sudden, without warning, Michigan fans everywhere freak out and beginning to claim that they had won the national championship. And not in like a we deserve to win kind of way, not in like a Barry Bonds home run record with an asterisk kind of way. They were saying that, no, in reality, we are the national champions. They're taking back the trophy. And every year, henceforth, Michigan fans everywhere are celebrating the year they won the national championship. Well, that wouldn't make any sense because we all saw their public, we all saw their public failure. And so if they were to do that, the natural response is to ask what? Why? What's, your, what's the deal? Why are you doing this? This is precisely the kind of turnaround that's happened with the resurrection of Jesus. His death, Rome's victory was very public, and it was decisive. It's not something you come back from. The disciples couldn't fake their way through this being true. It doesn't happen. It's anti-historical to believe that this happened. There was a mutation, and mutations require explanations. And the explanation is what we call these appearances, the appearances of the resurrected Christ. And so in the text that we've just read, it's Sunday night of Easter. The disciples are behind the locked doors. They've heard rumors. They heard rumors of a resurrected Christ, of his appearances, that Mary saw him, but none of the rest of them did. And so the disciples are together. Judas is gone because he's taken his life, and Thomas just happens not to be with the guys that night. And suddenly, as they're together, they're grieving, they're wondering, you know, whether they can go to the grocery store without getting killed. The resurrected Jesus appears to them. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is awesome, this is the picture of when Jesus showed up. And they're like, what? And Jesus says, shalom, y'all. Look at this. It's, such a, it's a little too casual of a wave for me for having just been raised from the dead. Hey, y'all. Shalom. He says it twice. Peace, peace. And he invites him close. He says, come here. I'm, I'm, I'm human. I'm, I've got skin. You can touch me. He touched, they, they put his hands where the nails were. And that spear-pierced side of his, they, they put their hands there, and they touched him, and they believed. He, I don't know what happened, but he's alive. And then you'll remember last week, Jesus is mistaken as the gardener. He's the gardener of God's new creation. He's, God's doing something new in the world. And Jesus carries on that motif. He calls the disciples close, and he breathes on them. I was going to breathe on one of you, but I think I have coffee breath. <laughs> I'll spare you, spare you. Uh, he breathes on them. And it harkens back to Genesis 2, this creation account. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became a living being. He's gone back to the garden. He breathes on the disciples, giving them new life. And then he says this, this strange thing. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And he has this bit about forgiveness of sins. In essence, what he's done is he's given them authority. Adam and Eve had been given authority to be God's representatives of the earth, stewards of God's creation, and they botched it up horribly. Jesus, the gardener of God's new creation, is giving them new breath and new life and new authority to be God's representatives on the earth, to represent him and the kingdom that God is building in the world. He gives them authority, and then he disappears from their sight. 
A week goes by. This is a gap in the text. I have no idea what they did that week. Did they stay behind closed doors the whole time? I don't know. What did they talk about? But we know maybe Jesus had been with them. We know a week later the disciples are together again on resurrection night, on Sunday night. And Thomas was with them this time. And Thomas is hearing the stories of what's gone down. And, and he just he can't believe. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap. Skeptics and doubters get a bad rap. Uh, I think Thomas is one who not doubted deeply, but loved deeply. When Lazarus died, uh, D- Thomas was the one who, who saw how much Jesus loved him and said, let's go with him so we can die with him. Thomas was a lover, and he couldn't bear the heartbreak of Jesus not actually being alive. And so he says to the disciples that night, unless I can touch him like you did, unless I can put my hand in his side or, or put my hands in his scars, I just can't believe, I just can't do it. And Jesus, just like he had the week before, appears to them and appears in their midst, and he calls Tom close. He says, Tom, come here. He touches him. And he has this transformation. And Thomas says in response, my Lord and my God. I want to make three quick comments about about Thomas and about skeptics and doubters. And we get this from Jesus here. The first thing I want to say Jesus does not appear threatened by Thomas's doubts. Does he seem put off? How dare you? Who do you think you are? He didn't do anything like that. Jesus is not threatened by his doubts. The church often is. Uh, Christians, <laughs> pastors often are, because sometimes you have questions like, holy cow, I don't know how to explain that. I have questions too. When I was 16, 17, 18, I started having intellectual questions about the faith, about my own motivation, and would go to youth pastors or or sponsors or teachers and and raise these questions. And sometimes those doubts were really, really threatening to people because they had a a fairly fragile theology. It was threatening to them to say, well, that's, that's an attack from the enemy, brother. You need to pray through that. Or, or it was, it was neglected. Sometimes people have doubts and it's like, if, if like, if it didn't go exactly as it's written, you know, if creation wasn't a literal seven-day week with 24-hour days, then the whole thing falls to pieces. Do you think God is threatened by science? He invented it. Do you think God is, is threatened by your doubts? Do you think He hasn't thought it through? Jesus isn't threatened. And so I just say to you, you have questions, I have questions, ongoing questions about my faith. God's not threatened by that, and the church is a safe place to deal with those, okay? Uh, one of my old ORU professors, uh, Brett Spears, was here last week, and I, I took a class with Brett, and I heard he, he said, a good definition for theology is faith-seeking understanding. It's okay to have questions and still believe. It's okay. Jesus wasn't threatened by Thomas's doubts. That's number one. The second thing. Jesus validates his desire for proof. So he doesn't wait for Thomas to initiate about seeing the evidence. He says, Tom, come over here, and he shows him the proof. He gives him the evidence. I think that's worth noting. Jesus doesn't invalidate that. God knows what we're made of. God knows that we've got our five senses and our life experience, and sometimes it's hard to believe. (laughs) God knows what we're made of. So if you've got questions, ask him. He's not threatened. He's not put off. Jesus validates his desire for evidence. But then the third thing that's noteworthy, especially considering the first two points, is that Jesus says to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. 
And doubt, in, in this case, seems to me that it's not primarily an intellectual thing. His doubt is an emotional barrier that he has to cross. And he has to do it with the exercise of his will. Stop doubting and believe. And then there's this, there's this passage which is funny until you think about the fact that we're, we're eavesdropping on this conversation between these guys. Jesus says, stop doubting and believe. Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. And then if this were being filmed, I think Jesus would like give a wink to the camera. Because he says, he says, Thomas, look, you believe because you've seen the evidence. And that's good. But blessed are those who believe but haven't seen. And you got to think he's thinking about us. He's thinking about all those who weren't in the room. And he gives the camera a little wink. Blessed are all those who believe but haven't seen, haven't gotten to touch me like you did. And then John, the author of this gospel, who's been telling us this Jesus story since the start, pulls back the camera, breaks the fourth wall, and he, he talks to us. And he says, look, uh, there are tons of things that Jesus did that I couldn't write down here. If I wrote down everything Jesus did, it would fill all of the volumes of books we have in the world. But the stuff I've written, these things are written so that you, the reader, the listener, in 21st century United States, in 4th century North Africa, wherever you're listening, these things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you'll have life in His name. And this is the great gamble that we've taken as a church. We've, we have quoted John 15, 5 a ton. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And this is an incredible hypothesis to take on, a huge risk to take on. He says, if you remain in me, if you're attached to me, and I'm attached to you, you'll bear fruit. Your life will flourish. You will be well. Do you want to be well? That's Jesus' question to the sick person. Do you want to flourish? Do you want to experience life? Jesus said, if you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. John says, this stuff is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. C.S. Lewis said this, said, Jesus is either a lunatic, a liar, or he's the Lord. Because the kind of stuff that Jesus said and Jesus did is the work of a crazy person, a deceived person, or someone who just happens to be telling the truth. And those first disciples who were among the sad fans with pumpkins on their head and going home shirtless because their guy lost were transformed because they saw him. And they believed, and we're the heirs of those who have seen, and we're invited to believe even when we've not seen. Um, life with Jesus is kind of like living in a house. And, and we're all, we, we're, Jesus is one of those, those guys, he's the Lord, he's the creator, where we need to know where we are in relationship to him. It's kind of like, uh, if I invite you to my house... And uh, I'm in the kitchen waiting for you to come in so we can share a meal. You're standing in the driveway forever. It's, it's, it's going to be kind of a weird meal. Life with Jesus is like a house. Maybe you are down the street somewhere, and you came today because you heard rumors about something that's going on at the house. You're like, yeah, I'll check it out. I'll make my way there. And so for the last decade, you've been kind of moseying your way through the neighborhood, thinking at some point, maybe when I have kids, I'll start making my way toward the house. And maybe you've even made it up to the front porch and you're within arm's distance of the door. You could touch it. You could knock and come on in. Maybe you're even intercepting the mail, but you're on the front porch where you're pretty close to coming in uh, to life with Jesus. 
He, he's there, he opens the door, and, but standing before you is the threshold, just like Thomas had a threshold before him, that emotional barrier he had to get over. He said, stop doubting and believe, come on in. The thing that helps us cross the threshold of going from the porch, from the outside in the cold, to being inside the house is crossing the threshold is by putting our faith in Jesus, saying, I believe. Until we cross that threshold of belief, we're on the outside. Um, we place our faith in Jesus. And sometimes that happens for us gradually. Um, some, you know, for me, like I, I remember a day when I gave my life to Christ, but really it's been a gradual thing. It's kind of like um, some lights, you turn them on or off, and some of them have a dimmer switch. And maybe for you, it's been like a gradual entry into the house. Or maybe that, like you feel like you're a native of the house, you've been there forever. But for many of us, we have to cross that line, that emotional barrier to say, I believe and the rest of our life with Jesus is learning to live in God's house under God's rule. Um, at my, my parents' house, on holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas, we have traditions. There are songs that we sing. And um, when other people who are not a part of our family come in, they're like, you guys do what together? <laughs> you sing? Ah. You have to learn the songs. You guys, did you learn the songs? Okay. Um, I have to learn the songs. I was at someone's house yesterday. Um, a friend of mine, but someone who's closer to my friend was there. And someone said, hey, where are the mugs here? And the person who's closer said, oh, it's in this cabinet. And they went and opened it, and I had no idea where it was. They had more experience in the house than I did. And now, th those of us in this room, maybe you've been in God's house for a while, and you know, like, you know where to find the forks and the knives. You know which bedroom is yours. You know all the way. You know where they keep the vacuum. Um, Maybe you're coming in and you're like, this whole place is new to me and I just feel disoriented. Maybe you're like, I grew up in this house. This is the place where I've, you know, I've, I've known church. I know when you sit, when you stand, know the Lord's Prayer, know, you know, the whole rigmarole. But you got bored with it and you, like, checked out other houses in the neighborhood. But you felt this compulsion to come home to Dad's house. I just ask, where are you in a relationship to Jesus? Are you inside the house? Are you, are you outside the house? Have you crossed that threshold of belief by putting your faith in Jesus? Are you inside the house, but you've alienated yourself from the rest of the family? You've, you've closed the door? Um, or are you, are you exposing yourself? Or are you making yourself available to the rest of the family and especially be known by the Father? The most intimate place in the house, most intimate place of fellowship, in my opinion, is the kitchen table. Because we can chit-chat in here on a Sunday morning or in a coffee shop. You've, you've done this with friends. But when you sit at their kitchen table and you see, like, if you came to our house, good gracious, they need to, like, clean this off. These kids are messy. They need to scrub the floors. There's intimacy at the table. The table's where the family gathers. Jesus came to bring us home to his Father's house so that we could have table fellowship. Jesus loves you. God who made you loves you. He understands what we're made of. He understands the difficulties we face in believing. He acknowledges it. He validates it. And he still invites us to cross the threshold and come on in and be in the Father's family. He even invites us to the kitchen table where we can be close to each other. And so as we come to the table, um, the Scriptures teach us when we come, we need to examine ourselves. And I would invite you to consider, where are you? Are you outside the house? Are you down the street? Are you standing on just before the threshold, but you've not yet crossed in? Are you in the house? Have you come to the table? I invite you to just come, and wherever you are, acknowledge it to God. And if you want to proceed farther, place your faith in Jesus.
Tell Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm hiding back here in the bedroom. I've been here for a while, but I want to get to know you. I want to get to know the lay of the land. I want to come to the table and, and talk with you. And as we come, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer, and then we'll, we'll share communion together. So let's pray together. Jesus, it's a, it's a sweet image to think that you invite us over to your house for, for dinner. But it's sweeter still when we think about the cost of that invitation. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were in rebellion, while we were yet sinners, while we mocked him at his feet while he suffered for us, Christ died for us. Jesus, thank you for giving yourself for us so that we could be brought into your father's family and named son or daughter, brother or sister. I pray for my friends here who are, are down the street and have, have heard what's going on and want to come home. Give them the grace to come home. For those who are standing on the front porch and haven't had the nerve to knock on the door yet and come in, I pray that you give them courage to say yes to Jesus today, crossing that threshold and saying, I don't even know what it means, but I believe in you. And I pray for those who are in the house, God, that we would we'd come close to you, that we'd learn to live under your rule, that we'd enjoy your company, that you'd let, let you teach us how we live in our family for our good. And Jesus, we just say we need you. We love you. We're grateful for what you're doing in our lives, in this community, and in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.